This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit, in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting's 2FM radio stations in Michigan and the Midwest, and Supertalk Mississippi Media's 12 radio stations and 50 affiliate stations in the South. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joe Lott and Sami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Sodorch, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit, and our distinguished guest hosts and presenters, the former governor of Mississippi, Phil Bryant, and the Honorable Morris McTeague, QSO. America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. brings together leading voices from business, government, media, technology, healthcare, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, Google, and Fireside. Visit iLeadersSummit.org. iLeadersSummit.org. Welcome to America's Roundtable. This weekend on America's Roundtable, we're delighted and honored to once again welcome to this program Roger Helmer from Great Britain, a stalwart supporter of the U.S.-U.K. relationship and a great friend of Israel and Jewish communities around the world and a principal leader who has addressed the concerns of the rise of socialism in the West. For more than two decades, his prescient words regarding the importance of energy security and concerns about climate socialism were a wake-up call to avoid the challenges we face today. Roger Helmer served in the political arena as a member of the European Parliament representing the United Kingdom and serving in the Conservative and the UKIP parties, respectively. He started his business career in 1965 with Procter & Gamble and holding senior marketing and general management appointments in a range of companies including Reader's Digest and National Semiconductor. Mr. Helmer has published two books on European issues, Straight Talking on Europe in 2000 and A Declaration of Independence in 2002. He also served as chairman of the Freedom Association in the United Kingdom. He was a supporter of the Better Off Out campaign, the Brexit movement that called for the UK to leave the European Union. And Mr. Helmer is one of the founding members of the Jerusalem Leaders Summit. And on this note, we welcome to America's Roundtable, Roger Helmer. A good morning to you, sir, and welcome back. Welcome, Roger. Good morning, both of you. It's great to be back on the show. We were just uh, talking about a lot of these key issues over these past few months, and we kept on thinking about you and your prescient words and statements that you communicated for two decades. And for our listeners, could you perhaps provide a brief overview, a brief history of how policymakers and major media platforms joined this group think of pushing green policies in the name of climate change and using the administrative state to use draconian regulations while shunning market solutions in achieving energy independence and energy security. Well, yes, uh, I'm afraid that uh, preventing climate change uh, has become almost a, a religion, a sort of cult with a lot of people. Uh, and if you want an analysis of why it would happen, uh, then I think if you're a politician, and of course I was a politician for the best part of 20 years, If some constituent writes to you and says, I'm very concerned about this issue, um, you can write a long letter back saying, well, I don't think you need to be quite concerned and we have it under control, so please don't worry about it. Or you can write back and say, thank you for bringing this to my attention. It really is important and I promise you I will do everything I can to resolve your problem. Uh, And you only need that to start getting into the media a little bit. And then the media outbid each other, you know, sea level will rise 10, 10 feet next year. 
uh, no, no, it's going to be 20 feet, no, no, it's going to be 50 feet. Um, and so there is a, a kind of self-generating progress uh, in the anxiety level. Now, there is still some dispute among scientists about not whether climate change is happening, it is certainly happening, the dispute about what is causing it. Because throughout the history of climate, uh, of the Earth's uh, uh, history and the Earth's climate, we have always seen fluctuations, increases, decreases, the Roman optimum, the medieval warm period. So some say, and I agree with them, that what we're seeing is a natural 21st century climate optimum. But I can't prove it, just as those who are frightened of what is going to happen cannot prove that their view is right. The question is, what should we do about it? And we should be prepared to look rationally at it and consider both sides of the argument. Now, it may well be that we should reduce CO2 emissions, um, but there are ways of doing that. And particularly, there are market-based solutions. I love a remark that one of the uh, former oil ministers of one of the Middle Eastern oil states, uh, he came up with a line, he said, the Stone Age didn't end because we ran out of stones. And I believe that the fossil fuel age will not end because we run out of fossil fuels. The fossil fuel age will end when we find better and more economical technologies and cleaner technologies. Things like, for example, nuclear fusion. Uh, it will come eventually, I can't tell you when, but that is a good approach. Replacing coal with gas is a sensible, logical approach. Uh, what is not logical uh, is these dramatic initiatives that we're going to close down this and we're going to stop that. Uh, we in Britain are saying after 2030, you won't be allowed to buy a new gas-fired boiler for your home. Uh, you'll have to use a, an air source heat pump. Um, lots of these things will just not work and they won't deliver for people. Now, what we're seeing in Europe uh, is a real crisis and the sign of a real pushback against these policies. Uh, I saw a note in, uh, on Twitter just recently, somebody saying the Conservative Party mustn't give up on net zero 2050 because the people want to save the planet. Uh, and I responded by saying, well, the people may well want to save the planet, but they don't want to pay for it at the gas pumps. Uh, that is the issue. And the people are becoming so angry now with the price of energy. The price of electricity is, has doubled in England virtually. Uh, the price of, of gas has virtually doubled, getting on for doubled, uh, in the last few months. Uh, and people are really, really hurting. Uh, and this is directly the result of ill-thought-out decisions that are being put in place far too quickly and without adequate thought. Now, a particular bit of the problem at the moment, or a largest representative of the problem, is what's going on in uh, continental Europe, and especially in Germany, because Germany has made a series of very serious policy mistakes. The first mistake they made was 10 or 11 years ago, after the Fukushima incident, Germany decided it would close down its nuclear capacity. It's been doing that. It's nearly finished. They closed down three nuclear power stations a few months ago, and I believe there are just three remaining which they are going to close towards the end of this year or the beginning of next year. That was a disastrous decision because nuclear power produces reliable electricity, come rain, come shine. Uh, and also, if you are concerned about CO2 emissions, 
it doesn't produce CO2 emissions in the process of generating energy. So that was uh, mistake number one. Mistake number two was a massive overcommitment to variable renewables, to solar and wind, which are unpredictable and go up and go down. Now, the result of that is you cannot have solar and wind without backup. And the most effective backup for solar and wind, of course, is gas. So Europe is still using a very great deal of gas. A mistake number three that Germany made was massive over-reliance on supplies from Russia. And now, of course, Russia, Putin, they have uh, Germany over a barrel because Putin is now threatening to close down gas supplies uh, to continental Europe and particularly to Germany. Uh, Germany has been getting something like 50% of the gas it uses in industry from Russia. We are getting, in Britain, getting some, but it's about 4%. So uh, we are much less vulnerable to, to that Russian action. But first, closing nuclear. Second, becoming uh, reliant on variable uh, renewable energy sources. And thirdly, becoming dependent upon Russia for gas. And they are in terrible trouble. And there is serious talk of a major recession, factory closures, energy rationing this coming winter, all as a result uh, of their mindless pursuit of net zero. Roger, actually, I just wanted to follow up on what you said, uh, because Germany is the largest national economy in Europe and fourth largest in the world. Indeed it is. As you said, depending on heavily on Russia's gas, with over 50% of its natural gas consumption supplied by Russia. And you mentioned Angela Merkel's decision in 2011 to phase out nuclear power in favor of a renewable future, which didn't work out. And on top of this, this past week, actually, Germany's Bundestag voted to shut down the remaining three nuclear power plants by the end of this year. Uh, you said you're going to be rationing this season, but I mean, how will they weather this obvious energy crisis on the long run, and especially the upcoming winter season? Uh, well, with great difficulty is, is the answer. Um, they are setting out plans now for actually withdrawing uh, energy from parts of their industry. It's going to affect major German industries like the car industry. Um, they may have uh, periods of, of days or weeks when they're closed down because they don't have uh, electricity. Uh, they are, of course, doing all they can to, uh, to find sources of energy. The bitter irony is that the whole project was to reduce carbon emissions. They are actually now, as we speak, reopening coal-fired power stations, uh, which is coal being one of the dirtiest forms of uh, energy production. Uh, but they're forced back into it because uh, the wind and solar on which they chose to rely simply cannot deliver in the absence of, of Russian gas imports. So it is a very serious problem. Uh, it will affect um, domestic users who, who may find that they simply can't heat their homes in the winter. And it will affect, as I say, industrial consumers. Uh, there will be massive uh, closures and unemployment uh, so a very serious economic uh, problem. They will do their best to mitigate it, but there is only so much they can do. 
And Roger, earlier you mentioned constituents and people who are upset, actually, about this climate change regulation. Mm. And climate change regulation has been seeping in within the American regulatory agencies and institutions, including in the most unusual places, such as within the U.S. Security and Exchange Commission, whose mission is to protect investors, maintain fair, orderly, and efficient markets, and facilitate capital formation. Now, last month, the Security and Exchange Commission proposed rule changes, and from their website, I quote, rule changes that would require registrants to include certain climate-related disclosures in their registration statements and periodic reports, including information about climate-related risks, that are reasonably likely to have a material impact on their business, results of operations or financial condition, and certain climate-related financial statement metrics in a note to their audited financial statements. And it goes on and on. On the other side, there is the most recent decision by the U.S. Supreme Court in the West Virginia versus EPA, Environmental Protection Agency case, whereby Supreme Court ruled in favor of a group of Republican-led states and coal companies to limit the EPA's agency ability to regulate carbon emissions system-wide. And this U.S. Supreme Court ruling is taking legislative powers away from unelected bureaucracy and will force the U.S. Congress, which abdicated its lawmaking responsibility, in order to have unpopular laws passed without risking the chances for re-election, to resume lawmaking with its accountability measures. Roger, where does the United Kingdom stand? And from your experience as a member of the European Parliament, where does the EU stand when it comes to separation of powers and removing the legislative powers from unelected bureaucracies, and especially in this climate change regulation? Well, I think we have very much the same uh, problems that you have had. Uh, and it's very interesting, this Supreme Court decision, because it does two quite separate things. On the one hand, uh, it actually changes the rules as they govern uh, environmental issues. But as you rightly say, on the other hand, it actually passes power back to where it ought to be, which is to the elected representatives of the people. Um, that is what I think we should be doing more of uh, in Britain, for example, we are constantly talking uh, about curtailing the agencies to which so much power and so much decision-making is given. Uh, unfortunately, we sit around talking about it, and every new election, every new prime minister promises uh, to do that. Uh, a bonfire of the quango. Do you use the phrase quango? We use the phrase quango, meaning a quasi-governmental organization. Um, uh, we wanted to sweep them away, but somehow they never get swept away. Uh, so I think your Supreme Court's decision, in terms of taking the decision back to elected representatives, uh, is actually critically important and is a blow for democracy. What we're seeing now, certainly in Europe, we're seeing not the, the passing of powers back to elected representatives, but at least we are seeing a very strong pushback in a number of countries uh, against the, the, the net zero plan. Um, I don't know if you follow the story in Denmark where farmers have been told to reduce the emissions from pigs. And the only way they can reduce the emissions from pigs is to reduce the number of pigs they have. So effectively, they're being told to cut down the size of their operations with the risk that many of them will go bankrupt. 
and they are naturally protesting in very vigorous terms against that. Uh, and elsewhere in Europe, uh, consumers are protesting against the, the price of electricity, uh, the price of gas. Uh, so we are seeing a demand from ordinary people, ordinary voters, ordinary consumers are saying, look, we've had enough of this. Uh, and the fundamental background difficulty, I think, is that it's alarming how far this sort of woke tendency um, and uh, the, the culture wars have permeated our media and our business uh, and our, our national organizations. Um, in Britain, we, have, uh, we, we call the officials of the government the civil service, and we always had a very high regard for these people, and they were, uh, they were mostly honest, and they were mostly um, committed to, to the benefit of the people and to doing things in the right way. They seem to have been taken over um, by a whole set of attitudes, which include uh, the issue of uh, climate change and the environment, but include many other issues as well. Um, a great deal of fuss in Britain, as I dare say also in America, uh, over this issue of gender and male and female. And I'm afraid our civil service and our government agencies have dropped very quickly into this new way of thinking. I'm encouraged as we go through the selection process for a new leader of the Conservative Party and therefore a new prime minister in the UK, uh, that the candidates, a number of the candidates, have actually come out with a very strong position saying, look, we have to, we have to take back this debate and we have to cut down the responsibilities of some of these organizations so they focus on their core task uh, and not on, on these sorts of uh, pseudo-political issues that they're so keen of taking up. While we're at it, of course, that it's not just uh, government agencies and the civil service. It is, of course, business as well. And we've had this extraordinary story about Ben and Jerry's ice cream, uh, where they seem more concerned about being uh, anti-Israeli um, and anti-racist and anti all the other things they have to be, uh, rather than uh, looking after the, the, the money of their shareholders and actually trying to, to um, produce a return on the capital employed, which is the proper business of business. So I'm afraid the, the, the canker of, of woke thinking uh, and essentially socialist thinking and state control thinking uh, has become ingrained in academia and in the business world uh, but I think what we are starting to see is a realistic pushback, starting with the issue, obviously, of climate change, uh, because people feel that straight away in their pockets. They feel it when they go to the shop. They feel it when they get the uh, utility bills. Uh, they feel it when they fill the car up with gas. Uh, and that may be the trigger for a rethink on many of these issues. Right. And Roger, when we talked to you last time in November of 2021, we addressed Biden's first day in office when he canceled Keystone Pipeline, despite of Obama's State Department finding that Keystone XL Pipeline would have no material impact on greenhouse gas emissions. And then Biden rushed to assure energy security for Europe by welcoming Nord Stream 2 natural gas pipeline from Russia to Germany, operated by Russia's Gazprom. And these two Biden's decisions undid America's and Europe's energy independence while bolstering Russia's Putin leverage and revenues to wage a war against Ukraine. Roger, what are your thoughts? Well, we now see Biden going cap in hand to Saudi Arabia and saying, please, will you help us? Because I'm worried about the midterm elections and I'm worried about the price of gas uh, and all these consumers who, who will be angry uh, with us for allowing the gas price to go so high. 
uh, the first response of any sensible government and sensible country to an energy crisis of this sort is surely that we maximize our domestic supplies. Uh, and that would mean, obviously, in, in the US, it would mean using all those resources, using the pipeline, and so on. Uh, and in Britain, it would mean starting on shale gas and, and uh, fracking, uh, which we haven't done. Uh, but there is now, I think, again, a change of heart in government, uh, and they are looking seriously at that. But I'm very worried about uh, President Biden. I mean, you, you set out the, the very unwise decisions that he made uh, on energy issues. And I see he's just um, in the Middle East and he's talking about Iran and he's terribly keen um, to pursue the nuclear deal, uh, which I think Trump quite rightly pulled out of. The policy on Iran just seems to be confused and a mess. On the one hand, I think Biden has reported today uh, as saying that he would favor stopping Iran from producing, by force if necessary, stopping Iran from producing a nuclear weapon. But on the other hand, he insists on talking to them when we all know that they won't keep their word. In fact, in September 24, 2021, Reuters reported that Sri Lanka would cease building new coal-fired power plants and achieve net zero carbon emission standards by 2050. And Sri Lanka had set a target of achieving 70% of all its energy requirements from renewable sources by 2030. And after a nearly a two-month lockdown in 2021 and other problems, in May 2022, Sri Lankans were running out of food, fuel, and medicine. Today, the Sri Lanka's president fled to Singapore, and some blame corruption. Others share that Sri Lanka had some $8 billion of debt that were due this year. And in order to do so, they would have to strike a deal with creditors and the International Monetary Fund to stabilize its finances and end the crippling shortages of essential goods. But as we look at these problems that Sri Lanka faces and the collapse of what transpired, we notice that Sri Lanka went all out for the UN's Net Zero Initiative. Roger, what would your advice be to policymakers in Washington, D.C. and other capitals, especially in developing nations, about taking on this task of going full for net zero and not taking into consideration how vital energy is to the economy and to the economic growth of a nation? Well, as we know, it's the availability of cheap or at least affordable energy which has transformed society over the last decades, so that now poverty on a global scale has been massively reduced, uh, and far more people are members of the middle classes, and it's been energy and afforded the availability of affordable energy that has enabled all these things to happen. Now, you may have a reason why you want to change your energy generating technologies. Uh, we could argue about whether the reason is a good reason or a bad reason. But it is sheer madness to pursue that uh, policy and to pursue those decisions before you have the necessary technologies to produce alternative supplies. And that is what we've done. We said, oh, well, uh, wind and solar will do it for us. And when people like me come along and say, well, these are intermittent, what are you going to do? Uh, oh, well, well, we'll have backup and we'll have batteries and we'll have this and we'll have that. Um, uh, but there's no serious work done on how much power you need, where it's going to come from, 
Uh, and that work has to be done before you start turning off nuclear power stations and coal-fired power stations and so on. If it is not done, you create uh, a social and an economic crisis, which is exactly what we're seeing writ large in Europe, um, but also reflected to some extent, I believe, uh, in America. You will know that better than I do. Um, but we've created a major problem by not seriously thinking ahead. I'll give you an example of the uh, of the stupidity of policymakers. Uh, in Britain, we want to convert uh, all our vehicles on the road, or at least all new vehicles, to uh, electric vehicles by 2030, I think the figure is. Um, that will require virtually doubling generating capacity in Britain. Nobody has talked about how we're going to double energy capacity. Nobody's talked about where the power is coming from. So even if we build all the electric vehicles, if China very kindly lets us let us have the rare earths and metals that we need to make all these electric vehicles. Um, we're not going to have the power to drive them, uh, which, is, um, which is an absolute absurdity. In the case of Sri Lanka, they've made just about all the mistakes you could make. Um, they had a, a brief flirtation with organic food. Uh, they decided that while they were pursuing all these good things for the planet, organic food might be a good idea. Uh, and I think that lasted about three months until the farmers went out on strike. And they realized that you can't actually make the same volume of food from the same land uh, if you use organic methods. Um, and the, the other real problem, which you didn't mention in the case of uh, Sri Lanka, I haven't studied it in detail, but I understand um, that they are already in hock to the Chinese for very large sums of money um, and are having to make all sorts of uh, concessions that they might otherwise not wish to make and which certainly the rest of the, the West would not wish them to make to China because they are so heavily indebted. Indeed. Uh, and I'm glad that you mentioned about China in that respect, Roger, because you're right about it. Sri Lanka has significant debts that they have to repay uh, to China, and we'll see how that all unfolds in the days and weeks ahead. Uh, Roger, it is always a great delight to have you on America's Roundtable. Your prudent counsel, your words of wisdom truly inspire us and challenge us. And we thank you for your time and your continued leadership on some of these important and, and truly vital issues of our day. Thank you, Roger, for your partnership and all that you're doing. It's a real pleasure. Thank you so much, Roger. And we miss your leadership in the European Parliament. I mean, Brexit was a good thing, but there are no voices like yours anymore. <laughs> <laughs> they were great days, weren't they? Thank you uh, so much, too, for, for providing the platform for, for sensible and balanced opinions. Uh, on all these vital questions that affect so many people. It's my privilege to talk to you, and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you so much. This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lanza Broadcasting's two FM radio stations in Michigan and the Midwest and Supertalk Mississippi Media's 12 radio stations and 50 affiliate stations in the South. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joe Ladinsami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Sodorch, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit, and our distinguished guest hosts and presenters, the former governor of Mississippi, Phil Bryant, and the Honorable Morris McTeague, QSO. America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. brings together leading voices from business, government, media, technology, healthcare, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, Google, and Fireside. Visit iLeadersSummit.org. iLeadersSummit.org.